so actually, that's what we're going to be talking about today, is Jesus claiming that he is the king. And, and we're going to get into that in a minute. Uh, but to get you kind of up to date, we are in the fourth and final week of a series that we have called Lego. And I guess that's the way that the young kids these days are saying, let go. I don't know. This is what I've been told. And we've been uh, discussing things in our life that we need to let go of. And a lot of us have been wrestling with different aspects of our life and different struggles that we have and trying to let those things go. And, and today we're going to be looking at uh, a story where Jesus confronts us with a question and a challenge. And, and if you're not a Bible person, let me just give you a background here. There are four different books that tell about Jesus' life. They're called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, um, and all of them give a different perspective on Jesus' life and ministry because they're written by different people who, who saw Jesus or interviewed people who, who knew Jesus. And so they oftentimes will contain some similar stories, but then some different stories. And so if you took a passage like one of probably the most famous stories or, or passage in the Bible, John 3, 16, God so loved the world, you, you find that in only one of the books. They're not in any the, of the other Gospels. Well, the story that we're going to look at today is in all four of the Gospels. And the reason why is because, one, Jesus probably said it a lot. He said it over and over and over again. It was one of his key teachings. But it's also super important. All the people who wrote the Gospels, each one of them said, this seems to be such a significant idea for Jesus that we need to make sure that we all include it in our books. And so independently, they all wrote their books and, 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 uh, and they, they put this in there. And so uh, we're going to look at the version that's in Mark. And if you're not familiar with Mark, Mark is actually the first gospel that was written. It was written just a couple decades after Jesus' death. Uh, has a lot of eyewitnesses accounts. A lot of them have to do with Peter because we believe that Peter is the one that influenced this book. A guy named Mark wrote it down for him. And so we get a lot of insight into Peter and, and Peter's interactions with Jesus. And in fact, we're going to see that Peter has a, a big part of this story as well. And so the place that we're going to be is Mark chapter 8. And this is the climax of Jesus' ministry. Everything has been leading up to this point. It is a turning point for uh, Jesus, his disciples, and the ministry. All the teachings, all the miracles, everything he's done has really been leading up to this question and this challenge. And so we'll jump in. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 27 is where we're going to be. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and follow along, or Bible app, or just watch on the screens. All right, here's what it says. Jesus and his disciples went uh, onto the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Uh, on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Okay, so this is the question that Jesus has been leading up to. He says, you know, a lot of people are talking about me. Uh, I've, ca I've ca uh, caused quite a stir out there. And so who are people saying that I am? What are people saying about me? Because Jesus understood something about himself is that people either they loved him or they hated him. They found him irresistible or irritating. Nobody just was indifferent about Jesus. And in fact, he still is probably one of the most controversial people uh, still in, in today. So there's a study that was done by uh, Wikipedia about who the top 100 most controversial people are. And in the last 15 years, the top three people, one has been Jesus, he's number three, right behind uh, George W. Bush and Michael Jackson. 2,000 years later, here we are, and he still is one of the most controversial people in all of human history. And so he says, what's the word on the street about me? What are people saying? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So, yep, there's a lot of people talking about you, and they know that you're important. Your teaching and your miracles and all. In fact, you're more than just an important figure. They're pretty sure that you've been sent by God, but they're not quite sure exactly who you are. And then he turns around and he asks the question. 
And he's asking his disciples this question, but of course he's asking the broader audience. He's asking everybody who can read this story. And this is the question that will not only transform the disciples' lives, depending on how they answer it, but it transforms everybody's life who asks this question. Because this is the question. He says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, if you're not a church person, somebody dragged you here today, and you're not even sure how you ended up in a church, and you come with a lot of questions, and I get that because I'm a person who has a lot of questions. You might come here and go, I don't know about church. I don't know if I like this place. I'm pretty sure I don't like these people. I don't like their views. I don't like what they're about. I got questions about science and faith and creation and evolution and how that fits together and then why there's evil and the Bible. That thing's old. Why should we trust it? You come in with questions. And here's the deal. I love those questions. I have spent years of my life asking those same questions. In fact, those questions bothered me so much that I spent three years getting a master's degree in theology because I just needed to know the answer to those. And I've discovered over all these studies and all these questions that there's good answers to them, but it really boils down to one question. Because depending on how you answer this question will really affect how you answer the rest of these questions. And Jesus nailed it. He says, who do you say that I am? Let's begin there. And so... uh, If you're a thinking person and you're a person who really wants to understand the world and what is true, I think that this is the question that you have to ask yourself. Is it the most important person in history who has transformed the world? There's no disputing it. He is the most important person in human history. He's changed the world um, more than anyone ever has. If this person has also claimed to be God and claimed that he can offer salvation and eternal life, I think it's your duty to figure out who this person is. Who is this Jesus figure? You don't have to believe in the supernatural and all the things that we're talking about, but I do believe that you need to answer this question. Who is Jesus? Well, Peter jumps in and he says, you are the Christ. Now, some of you guys, this is going to be worth getting out of bed for because this whole time you have thought that Christ was Jesus' last name. You went, yeah, like Jesus Christ. You know, you got Mary Christ, and you got James Christ, you got Jesus Christ, the Christ family. I mean, you guys heard of the Christ? They're great people. Actually, no, that's not what's happening here. Is, is Christ is the Greek term for Messiah, and it is packed with meaning and significance because the Jews have been talking about this coming Messiah for hundreds of years before Jesus. In fact, this was one of the things that they were most focused on is they were waiting for this promised Messiah because for hundreds of years before this, prophecies had been spoken about someone who is going to come and redeem and save uh, Israel. It's going to bring the world back together, restore David's throne, and this person was the Messiah. And so let me give you just one verse. There's a ton of them, but let me give you one written hundreds of years before this. Here's what it says in Daniel 7, 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Peter, a good Jewish man, knows that the Messiah is supposed to come, and as he watches Jesus, he says, you know, I think you are that person. I've been waiting. I've been watching. I see what you're up to, and I think that the Messiah that we've been waiting for, I think that person is you. Then Jesus says, all right, that's right. I'll claim it, but I don't want you to tell anybody. I want you to keep this secret to yourself, which is kind of strange. Wait, you're the Messiah. You're the King of Kings. You're the Lord of Lords. And yet you want me to keep it on the DL? He goes, yeah, yeah, just keep it to yourself for a little bit because I've still got some work to do. And then Jesus turns around and he says something that shocks 
the, the listener shocks Peter, and if you understand the context, I think you would be shocked as well. Verse 31, he says, uh, Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So he says, yeah, I am the Messiah. And then he turns around and he says, but I have come to suffer and die. And what Jesus is doing in this moment is he's doing something theologically significant. He is connecting some dots that nobody has ever put together before. Because the Jewish, uh, the Jewish conception, conce, conce, mm, the way that the Jews thought about the Messiah, <laughs> man, speaking words is hard. Okay. <laughs> The Jewish people, the, the way that they were anticipating the Messiah and kind of the indicators of the Messiah was that he would come in power, that he would reign, that he would establish a throne or reestablish the throne of David, and he would end evil, pain, and suffering. And then Jesus comes along and says, I am the Messiah, but I have not come to end suffering. I've come to suffer. I've come to die. And he is, in this moment, connecting some dots that they had never connected before. They had a conception of the Messiah, and yet he was totally shattering what they thought the Messiah was going to look like. Because there was another set of prophecies that were in the Old Testament. So there's a set of prophecies about the Messiah, but then there was these other prophecies about this, and it's usually referred to as the suffering servant. And that people thought, and, and if you talk to modern-day uh, practicing Jews, they believe this as well, is that the suffering servant is the people of Israel themselves. And so one of the uh, prophecies sounds like uh, is in Isaiah 53. It says, yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And so Jesus, in this moment, and Peter doesn't realize that, but what he's doing is he's connecting these two people or these two prophecies, and he's saying they are one in the same. The Messiah and the suffering servant are both the same person, and that person is me. And of course, if you've grown up your whole life believing one thing, and then somebody comes along, and they're trying to teach you something radically different, that's hard to accept. That's hard to, to, to take in. And so Peter turns around, and he's shocked, and here's what he says. He takes Jesus aside, and he rebukes him. Now, this word rebuke is a pretty strong word. It's actually the word um, that is used when Jesus rebukes demons, when he casts out demons. That's the same word that's happening. And so you kind of get the gravity of what Peter is doing in this moment. And then Jesus turns around and he says, uh, and, and he says to Peter, um, and, and by the way, I think it's a bad idea to rebuke Jesus. Um, and I think Peter's probably going to learn that here because here's what he says. He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So he goes, don't you rebuke me. I rebuke you. In fact, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> okay, try that next time. Can you imagine your kids? Don't you tell me what to do. You live in my house. Little Satan, get to your room, you know. <laughs> Just start saving me up for counseling right now, because it's going to... But Jesus is really saying to Peter, he's saying, the reason why you're so worked up is because in your mind you had this agenda, you had this plan, 
And I've come along and I am shattering the plan that you had for your life. Because they used to argue, the disciples would argue about, okay, when Jesus is in power, I want to be the number two guy, you can be the number three guy, and, we're gonna, and that's going to be our positions in the new kingdom. And they had all their future planned. I'm going to be somebody. I'm going to do something with my life. And Jesus is going to take me there. And now Jesus is coming and going, yeah, those plans that you had, it's not going to turn out like that. The agenda that you had set for your life, yeah, that's gone. See, I think Jesus sees a, a teaching moment because what he does next is he takes this dispute that he's having with Peter and he kind of brings it to everybody. Verse 34, he called the crowd to, get, uh, crowd to him along with his disciples. And so there would always be people uh, following Jesus. Sometimes it was enormous crowds, thousands of people. And he sees this interaction that he's having with Peter and he goes, you know what? Everybody come along. Let's go. Crowd, gather up. I want to make sure that you guys understand what I'm talking about when I'm talking about following me. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. And here's what he says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Uh, oh, uh? <laughs> right before this, he, he's feeding thousands of people. They're walking around going, this is awesome. I love hanging out with Jesus. And he goes, all right, everybody come around. Okay, so you, you guys are all coming to see what I do. Now I want you to come and die. Uh, honeymoon's over? <laughs> this isn't fun anymore? Have you ever had one of those moments where you go into an activity or a relationship and it is just so much fun and then there's a moment which you go, oh, this just took a turn. This isn't working out the way that I thought it was going to be. My wife reminded me um, of uh, a moment that we had like this with one of our kids is, you know, I have this love, hate, or hate, hate relationship with Disneyland, and uh, we go there all the time. Well, we took our son last year on his first ever roller coaster, and he has been waiting forever. He's just like so empty. He saw his sister go on it. He got bigger shoes. He is standing tall. He grew his fro out a little bit. I mean, he is, he wants to go on a roller coaster because he's, he thinks it's going to be the best thing ever. But then he quickly realizes this isn't exactly how I thought it was going to be. And we have a quick video of that, I think. So watch this. Is this your first roller coaster? Are you excited? Ready? <laughs> Poor kid. Poor kid. That's sort of the face that I see on the crowd as Jesus is talking right now. They're like, okay, Jesus, what do you want? And he goes, come and die. And he's, they're like, uh, uh, this, isn't, this isn't fun anymore, Jesus. I'm not sure I like this. Right now we see this turning point in Jesus' ministry in which he is now telling people to pick up their cross. And for us, a cross is a symbol. It's jewelry. It's decorations around our house. It's something that, um, that we cling to. And yet as they hear cross, they hear suffering and shame and death. They've seen it. They've smelled it. When he says pick up your cross, this isn't just jewelry. This is something that means death. And so... Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus just laid out what it is to become a follower, a disciple of him. He says, you know, a lot of you guys have been fans. You've been following me around. You're enthusiastic. You like what I can do for you. Well, if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost you something. I think the difference between a fan and a follower is action. 
Jesus said, believe in me five times in the Gospels. Five times he said, believe in me. Believe in who I am and what I can do and what I, what I offer you. But he says 20 times, follow me. See, because it's not just about believing certain things to be true about Jesus. It's about putting those things into action. It's actually about stepping out there and, and following him. So some of us, we, uh, we've been sitting on the sidelines for a long time, but it's time for us to get in the game. It's time for us to move from purely being fans of Jesus to followers. And, and look, I, I do believe that being a fan of Jesus, listening to his teachings, it will make your life better. It'll make your marriage better. It'll make your, your kids better. It'll give you a better outlook on life. I, I believe all of those things. But that's not what Jesus came to do. He's not interested in creating a bunch of fans. In fact, if you watch him, when big crowds would begin together, like in this story, he would usually do something to challenge them, and then they would run away. So he'd get a big crowd together, and he'd go, okay, uh, if you want to be my disciple, here's what you need to do is you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people would go, later, <laughs> we're done. And it would just be the disciples standing there like, well, that was awkward. What do we do now? Because his whole point was, I'm not interested in fans. I'm interested and followers. And if you want to follow me, here's what you have to do. You have to deny yourself and pick up your cross. What he's saying is you have to let go of your life. Everything. You're no longer the center of the universe. It is not your will any longer. It's not what you want. It's about what I want. It's about me being the ultimate authority. And so to follow Jesus means that we have to let go of our marriage, our kids, relationships, money, career. We have to let go of our future hopes and dreams, the agenda that we have, our beliefs, our opinions. We even have to let go of our sin and our self-righteousness. Jesus said, I came to take your entire life. That includes your sin, all the stuff that you've done, the rebellion against me. I came to put that upon myself, but I've also come to take away your self-righteousness, the, th the thought that you can impress God and earn your way to heaven. I'm taking that as well. Your best and your worst deeds, I want all of it. There's nothing that you get to hold on to. It is all mine. It is 100% full commitment, hands totally open. If I were going to uh, make up a religion or a movement, I think I would use Jesus as my blueprint for what not to do. These are horrible things to start a movement. Imagine, there's just a couple of them. They're out in the Middle East, in the middle of nowhere. And what he's doing is he goes, okay, there's a guy named Peter. Peter, you're going to help lead my movement, and I'm going to call you Satan publicly. All right, we'll see how that goes. And then uh, if you want to be a part of the movement, I'm going to ask you to deny yourself and to die. Who's with me? That would be a, I, I'm pretty sure that would be a very small movement of people. And it's also one of the reasons why I think it's true. It's because I wouldn't make it up like this. This is not how I would start something. I don't think you would either. And so he continues on. He says, for whoever wants to save their life, you could say it another way, whoever refuses to let go of their life, whoever continues to pursue money and safety and comfort and reputation and pleasure, the people who continue to hold on with both hands as tightly as they can to their life, those people are going to lose it. And the word that is used here in the Greek is psyche, where we get psychology from, and it refers to not just your, your physical life, but your soul and yourself. I think Jesus is trying to express the degree of loss that you experience if you continue to try to hold on to your life. He said, if you continue to try to hold on to your life and be in control, you will physically lose it. It doesn't matter how much money or comfort or power you have, everybody will lose their life. Everyone. Eventually, you are going to die. 
doesn't matter who you are. But then he also, I think, is trying to emphasize, but not only are you going to lose your life, but you're going to lose your soul. That if you continue to try to hold on to your life instead of giving it to me, somehow your eternity will be lost. And even deeper than that, he says, you will lose your sense of self. You're going to lose your identity, your purpose, your value, because as you pursue other things, they will eventually fail you. Because you will either lose those things, your money and your health and your beauty and your whatever, or they won't satisfy you. You'll get to the top of that mountain and realize there was nothing here. I've gotten it all, and it never satisfied. And so he says this, he says, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, the big picture, he's obviously referencing um, salvation of our souls, that if you let go of your life to him, that he offers you salvation and an eternal life. And that's the big, overarching, big picture. But he also has some really practical implications, is when we let go of our life, we also receive something in this life. And so Matthew has a different version of it. Here's what Matthew's version is. It says, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So he says, you're not going to just save your life. You're going to find your life. That somehow when you give your life over to Christ, you're not losing anything. You're actually gaining. You're actually finding something. You're going to find your true identity, your true purpose, value, and worth. And when you do that, when you let go, and then you receive those things, it's going to bring incredible freedom and peace. Freedom because you don't have to worry about what your future looks like. You don't have to be full of fear and anxiety. You no longer have to prove your worth to others because you have now found it all in Christ when you let it go. And do you know what kind of peace that, that, that you get to experience? Is when you fully let go and you're not trying to white knuckle it anymore and you just go, it's all yours, just do with it what you want. Do you know what kind of peace you feel in that moment? Total peace. Because I can trust him and I know that if he's in the driver's seat, that he's going to work it out. This, I think, makes sense. If God, if there really is a God, and Jesus really is that God, he knows far better than we do. Not just like in life, but like about us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows what our life should look like and what true purpose and value and meaning, and he knows how to get us there. And so if we are, allow, if we are able to let our life go and let him take it, we're going to experience far more than we could ever do for ourselves. The Christian paradox is if you want to fully live, you have to first die. If you want to gain your life, you must lose it. If you want to find it, you must let it go. He continues on in verse 36. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? He says, all right, let's imagine this. Let's imagine that you can have everything and anything that you want in this life, that nothing is denied you. That you can have as much money as Bill Gates, and you can experience as much pleasure as Hugh Hefner. You can be as good-looking as me. You can, all of those things. That was more laugh than I wanted to get for that. But let's, let's say that you live, however you define it, your best life ever. However you can imagine. You live 120 years, and every day is better than the last. Let's say that all of that comes true, and he asks this question. What good is it to have everything you could want, but at the end of it all, you gave up your soul? Would you trade the eternal for the temporal? 
Would that be worth it? He, and then he goes and he says it, kind of the same thing, but in a different way. He says, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? So imagine you got the best life ever. You come to your last day on earth. You are about to die and take your last breath. And as you do that, you realize, oh no, I have traded my eternity for all of these things that I can no longer take with me. All the stuff, the experiences, the pleasures, the reputation, all of that stuff is about to end. And I traded it all. And he asked this question, what would you do to, what would you trade in order to get your soul back? I think everybody would answer, I would trade any and everything in that moment to get my soul back. And so here's the learning I think that maybe we haven't thought about before is that you and I, we value our soul so much that we are willing to give up any and everything to save it. We don't live like that, but we believe that. That we would give up any and everything in order to save our souls. And so, and Jim Elliott says like this, He is no fool who gives up, uh, gives that which he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. That somehow we are able to give up something that we're going to lose anyway. It's going to be taken for us, whether we, from us, whether we like it or not. But we can somehow give it up in order to receive something that can't be taken away. And so here's the last question I have is, if you would give up anything and everything in order to save your soul, why haven't you? Why do you keep holding on? For some of you, you, you continue to hold on to your life and try to be in control, and you refuse to let it go. For, for others, it's, yeah, Jesus, I'm, le I'm letting you take everything except for this. This is still mine. You, you can have 90%. You can have 95%. You can have 99% of my life, but I just need to keep this back here, okay? Why do you continue to hold on? Why do you refuse to let go? See, so many of us, we will say that we are all in, that Jesus is our everything, that we would trade anything in order to have life with him. But then we turn around and we go, ah, but he wants my money? Wait, wait, he wants my time? I, I don't know, man, I can't be there that often. I gotta change my schedule. Ah, I'm not sure if I can make that commitment. Now, I oftentimes want to ask people, are we reading the same book? Are we reading the same gospel? I struggled with, uh, with this as well. I, I get it, but I want to just go, are we, are we talking about the same Jesus here, the one that just called these people to come and die, and we're struggling with to come on time? Ooh, that got weird. Um, I think that some of us, unfortunately, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we are followers, but we're just fans. We think we're in the game, but we're just on the sidelines, and we're cheering on when it's convenient for us. And Jesus says, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow. After Jesus would give these very difficult and challenging uh, talks, he would oftentimes end with a call to action to do something. Hey, you want to follow me? Sin no more. Hey, you want to follow me? Give away everything that you have. You want to follow me? Leave your father. Leave your mother. Leave your brother. Let's go. Get up. Walk. Because following me is not just something that you do in your heart. It's something you do with your hands and your feet. So let's go. And I think that some of us, this might be a call to action. That we are supposed to move from being fans to followers. And it might cost us something. Today, I want to give you the opportunity to do that, to say, Jesus, 
um, I want you to be Lord over all. And you may have never said that before, and that might be intimidating and scary, and you're going to go, I want you to take my life, and it's all yours, completely open-handed, holding nothing back. And that might be the first time for you to ever say that. There might be another group of you in here, you've been going, yeah, Jesus, it's yours, it's yours, it's yours, as I hold this back here. This relationship, this is still mine. This hurt, this fear, this shame, this money, this schedule, whatever it is, you're holding something back here and you go, it's all yours except for this. And today you need to go and go, all right, it's all yours. I come with open hands and I say, it is yours. I'm letting it go. C.S. Lewis, uh, in reference to Romans 1, where Romans 1 talks about our lives being a living sacrifice, says the problem with living sacrifices is that uh, it keeps crawling off the altar. The problem is, is we can say, Jesus, it's yours, and then the next day wake up and try to take it back. And some of us, we've taken it back, and we need to let it go, and we're going to have to continue to let it go. But today is going to be the day that we publicly say, I'm letting it go. It's yours. It's not mine any longer. And so what I would like to just offer for you to publicly do this, and, and I know it's a scary thing to do something publicly, and I think Jesus probably knew that was going to happen, because the verse right after this, he talks about, if you are ashamed to stand for me, then I will be ashamed to stand with you. And so he knew, oh, this is uncomfortable, I don't like this. He goes, hey, who, whose are you? Are you in this or not? And so I want to give you an opportunity today to stand as I pray, and, and if you want to give your life over and say, I'm tired of being in control, I'm letting it go, I want you to stand, and I want you to publicly declare that by standing. Some of you guys have been holding something back, and you've been like, okay, God, it's yours, it's yours, it's yours, and today you need to go, nope, it's all yours. I'm, I'm not holding on any longer. And so as I pray, and I want to pray over you, I'd ask that you stand, and then we're going to sing one more song, and I want this song to not just be a song, but a prayer for us. And so let's pray. Lord God, we come here as people who, no matter what our disposition is, we are people with control issues because we want so badly to be in the driver's seat of our life. Even those of us who have said that you are the Savior, you are the Lord, we continue to try to take that back. We continue to try to keep something away from you to ourselves. And Lord God, today we come and we publicly proclaim that you are Lord over all, every part of our life. Some of us, we've never made that commitment before, and it's terrifying, but we want to come forward and we want to say, Lord, you are my Savior. I can't do this life on my own. I'm, I'm tired of trying to be in control. I come with my arms and my hands wide open, and I say, it's all yours. And so, Lord God, as people are standing all throughout this room, I just pray that, that you would meet them here as they, as they do something. It might make them feel uncomfortable that you would meet them and that you would that you would take that shame and that guilt and that fear, that you would take that addiction and that habit, that you would give them the courage to make that next step in that relationship or that decision that they need to make. And for some who are making the commitment to follow you for the first time today, Lord God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would enter into them, that they would be able to walk out of here changed, be different because you are now the Lord of their life. And so, Lord God, we love you. We thank you for meeting us here. It's in your name we pray. Amen.